Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Carrie James Marshall returns to the program. The Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago is showing Carrie James Marshall Mastery, the artist's first retrospective. Marshall is one of the most significant chroniclers of the American experience, especially of the African-American experience. For 35 years, he's focused on adding black people and black culture to a Western art historical canon that is mostly built on white faces and stories. The exhibition, curated by Dieter Rolstrott, Helen Molesworth, and Ian Altavere, is on view at the MCA Chicago through September 25th. We'll travel to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and then to the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. Its exhibition catalog was published by Skira Rizzoli. This is Marshall's second appearance on the Man Podcast. He was previously on the show in 2013. We'll have a link to that from manpodcast.com. Marshall was going to be the only guest on this week's program, as you can probably tell from the length of our conversation, but we made a late bonus edition, a segment with artist Katie Grannon. She photographed President Barack Obama for this week's New York Times Magazine, and I wanted to chat with her about it. Grannon's pictures, typically portraits, explore themes such as identity, desire, and the American story. First up, Carrie James Marshall, after the break. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Doho Sioux at its downtown location through July 4th. Operating within a distinctly 21st century global mode, Doho Sioux crafts evocative works that reflect ideas of home, identity, and personal space. This solo exhibition features work ranging from large-scale architectural installations to sculptures, works on paper, and video. For more information, visit www.mcasd.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, the first comprehensive museum exhibition in the United States to examine the renowned experimental college. Leap Before You Look features more than 200 objects and 90 artists, including Annie and Joseph Albers, John Cage, Merce Cunningham, Ruth Asawa, Robert Rauschenberg, Elaine and Willem de Kooning, Susan Weil, and Cy Twombly. Delve into the history and influence of Black Mountain College with in-gallery performances, and more than two dozen public programs, all free and open to the public. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Leap before you look, on view through May 15th at the Hammer Museum. Free for good. And we're back. Carrie James Marshall, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. This is, of course, the second time you've been on the show, so we're going to whiz past the introductory stuff, some of the things we talked about in 2013, such as the nuts and bolts of your career-long project. Instead, I want to go back a little earlier, such as when in grade school you, shall we say, liberated images of great paintings from library books. <laughs> a knowing laugh. Could you briefly tell us the story of how and why that happened? <laughs> how and why? I, I, I think I've confessed that crime a, a long time ago. Yes, but, in an archives of American art. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? So here's the thing, I, I, I think. I, I really became obsessed with images, with, with images from paintings and, and uh, art books, Really early, probably around fifth, you know, fifth or sixth grade, maybe even a little earlier, maybe even in fourth grade. You know, after I first found out there was a place called a library, you know, you could go in there and they had all these books, books you could check out. And 
I didn't have any idea of where books came from. So where you could go to get books uh, if you wanted to buy books. And then at that time, I wouldn't have had any money to buy a book anyway. There was something about those books and the fact that you had to go to the library to look at them or, or to get access to them that, that created a mystery around where they came from. So I, 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 I liked looking at them. And I think I noticed back then when you checked out books from the library, sometimes you used to have to sign your name. And it's like all of the names of people who checked out a certain book would be listed uh, on, a, on a sheet where the due date was. And, I mean, after a period, it started to look like I was the only person checking out some of those books. And, and in some of those books, they had tipped-in illustrations where it was like a, a, a reproduction that was stuck to a sheet of paper with two dots of glue at the top. The old-fashioned way, yeah. The old-fashioned way, I guess. And, I mean, and my, I guess my 10- or 11-year-old mind <laughs> created a logic that suggested that since I was the only person interested in those books, it seemed, that if I took some of those tipped-in illustrations out, nobody else would miss them because I was the only one taking the book out in the first place. And so I did because it was a way of, of possessing those images and having them without having to keep going back to the library to get that book. But And the other part of it was that back back in the late 60s, uh, mid-60s and late-60s, uh, they used to advertise a lot of products on TV for doing crafts and, and things. And I had seen a commercial on TV for this this kit called Decopage, Decopage It, uh, where you could make decals out of images and stick them on furniture and you know jewelry boxes and stuff like that for decoration. And so I... The, the the thrifty drugstore near our house had some of that, and then and the stuff that went with it was called decal it, which was a kind of polymer medium, and you paint that on the surface of the picture, and after it dried, you soak the picture in water, and then you could peel the paper off the back, and it would leave you this transparent image like a decal, and then you could stick that on things. And so I started I started sticking those on my notebook, so I was obsessed with two things. One was that material the decal it that could turn any picture into a decal and the other was obsessed with possessing those images out of books that I didn't at the time know how to get any other way. So that's that's kinda how that how that started. So I was doing some of that myself when I was in fifth and sixth grade, but with pictures of baseball players in Sports Illustrated. I'm I'm sure you've thought about this a lot over the years. Why was it the thing you gravitated to were were, you know, Goya's black paintings and not, you know, some Chicago bear. Well, but I wasn't in Chicago. I wasn't in you weren't Chicago, in Chicago at the time. Yeah. I was in so, California. You know, some Los Angeles Rams. Well, because I, the thing is, like, I was impressed by those paintings. I mean, they looked serious. And they looked serious and they looked mysterious. And that meant something to me. And you could clearly see that they were made by somebody. And so since I was wanting to know how they made them, you know, being able to look at them more often was, was, a, was an issue for me. And so, I mean, really it comes down to the fact that those 
pictures looked like serious stuff. And they, they looked like real art to me. Well, given the fact that they had come out of our history books, I guess they, they, they were. So, but they just, they looked serious, and I wanted to be serious about it. And, and it was, in, in your own way, getting your hands on the objects that, that you would essentially spend your career inserting your own work into. In, in hindsight, were there any paintings that you... I don't know what the technical term for what you did is, but, you know, peeled out of books. <laughs> you could say stole. <laughs> <laughs> because that's, I mean, that's, that's liberated. <laughs> bluntly put, that's sort of what, what it was. Have you found yourself at moments in the studio over the last 30 years realizing that you were referencing or using one of those images that you handled in your childhood? Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't say directly referencing any of those because I I think over time, I mean I I just started accumulating images. You know I I I had a really a vast archive of clippings of pictures from magazines and from books that I I kept. I mean I kept up that practice all the way up till you know probably ten years ago when I I I developed a project that's a part of this show called the Baobab Ensemble. And it's, it's, it's simply a, an impromptu meeting place that's scattered with clippings from history books and art history books and art history magazines and art magazines. I mean, there's like thousands of pictures. And these are the pictures that, these are some of the pictures that I had been saving and clipping you know, for decades. But in, and when I when I finally got to the point where I was going to do that thing as a project, I simply turned it over to somebody else who I paid to cut up the magazines for me, instead of having to do it myself. But I did it myself back then because I wanted to know every one of those things and handle it as I was cutting it because that gave me a chance to think about it. So I mean, just having a collection of random pictures that I didn't that I had never looked at didn't didn't really mean so much. Because they, every, I mean, it, it's there's a reason why you select the picture to cut it out, and so I I stay close to the reason why I selected the thing in the first place. But when I so, but when I wanted when it when it got to a place where the specificity of each one of those images wasn't going to matter so much to me anymore, then I could turn it over to somebody, and I I hired a, a you know. A, graduate student and the former graduate student at UIC where I was teaching to, to cut out some, because I saved every magazine. I mean, every art magazine. And I just had them go through the magazine and cut them up and save all of the pictures. So I don't know where in, in your growing up slash beginning to go to Otis in Los Angeles, this happened. But at some point earlier in your life, you were interested in being a children's book illustrator. Why? Why? Why that way? So before I got to Otis, I graduated from high school in 1973, and then I worked uh, a couple of jobs before the big recession. I think in 74, 75, where we all got laid off when I was working for Kentile Floors, and that gave me a chance to go back to school, L.A. City College, L.A. City College, to start getting the credits I would need to be able to transfer into Otis. And I took a children's literature class. Oh, at L.A. City College. At L.A. City College. 
but and I did that partly because before then I had I had at a used bookstore I had come across a copy of one of those Scribner's volumes of Treasure Island that had illustrations by N. C. Wyatt in it. And the thing was so since I had never read the book when I didn't read that when I was in junior high school or in high school. So I I bought it. Uh, and I bought a, a, a an Arabian Nights book that had illustrations by Maxfield Parrish. So, well, the thing was that reading those books and then having those pictures there, those two things paired with each other made the book even more magical. And so that was one of the reasons I thought, well, yeah, maybe I'll be a, uh, I would love to be a children's book illustrator in the same mode of people like uh, N.C. Wyatt and like Maxwell Parrish because it just, it enhanced, I mean, it enhanced the book so much. It made it into an object that was worth having at the same time that it was a story that was worth reading. In hindsight, do you think there's anything from that interest and aspiration that remains in your work? Yeah, I, I guess to the degree that I I am interested in a certain kind of clarity where you know the the images i i think i make images that in a lot of ways can be read and maybe in the same way that you would read a book by uh, layering levels of, of of meaning through the relationship between things in the picture so if you're not going to have a text to support it then you have to figure out a way to layer the things into the picture so that when people see it, they know that all these things are related to each other in one way or another and that they build up to a bigger thing than just simply uh, the, the, the sensation of looking at the image you see. I think that really begins to happen in your work in the early 1990s when you begin having more than one figure in your paintings and when over the course of one minute, three minutes, five minutes, a person looking at your paintings realizes or can figure out the narrative behind them. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that to me, I mean, you got to figure out a way to make the picture arresting in some kind of way. I mean, to keep, to get people to look at it as opposed to simply walk by it. And, and I think that kind of layering adds up to a certain kind of complexity. You know, hearing the children's book story has me thinking about something I hadn't thought about before, and that is, it really is, it, it took a while for you to get multiple figures in single paintings. I mean, you had done paintings that were kind of painted diptychs where you had a face on either side and such, but it, but it really took, you know, until well into your career, 10, 15 years into your career, almost 20 years into your career, before you were, were able to or felt comfortable, I'm not sure what the phrase is, having many people in a picture. Why? What, what, what did you have to get through or get to, to to build a scene with multiple figures? Well, the thing is, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to manage a lot of figures in a picture. I mean, that's, that's one thing. I mean, it, it takes longer to figure out how to make it work. And then each figure in a picture has to have its own attention. I mean, which means you have to do, you know, from from figure to figure, you got to do what that figure needs to do, and then you have to balance all that against what's happening with the ground. If it's a 
complicated ground like a landscape, and you got all those other elements to deal with. Uh, so there's a lot to there's a lot to try to there's a lot to be responsible for when you're doing compositions that have more than one figure in it. And then you have to invent things for those figures to do that make sense in a picture. So you know the they don't just I mean when you're constructing a picture that that you've imagined, I mean it doesn't just come all together. You gotta put it together. Which means that you gotta kinda of, you gotta cast it. You gotta costume it. You gotta light it. And then you gotta adjust it and keep adjusting it until everything seems to work together. And in the uh, the the way the art world is sort of operates now or the conditions of the art world now uh, don't tend to encourage the kind of time invested in pictures that take a long time to do and so i mean the easiest thing to do is to put it is, is to put a to simply to put a figure against the ground that's that's fairly simple or to take a photograph and translate the photograph into a painting okay well that's fairly simple but to in to invent a context in which figures have to do things that make sense and they seem to have a relationship to each other, well, that just takes a lot more effort. It takes a lot more energy. Do you remember what helped you figure that out, whether it was somebody else's paintings or just sheer brute hours in the studio or something else? Well, I mean, it's a combination of things. I mean, if if, if going back to the library... <laughs> You know, it's like, well, the one reason for looking at all those books is to try and figure out how the things in the books were made. And so you, you read a lot about composition. You try to analyze and study the composition of pictures you like or that you think are important or that do the kinds of things you think you want your picture to do. You try to, you, you try to analyze those and figure out how they, how they work. And then, you, and then you practice it. I mean, so it goes back to the reason why you look at an art history book in the first place. Yeah, no, building up a visual memory, building up a... Yeah, to build up an understanding of what the dynamics are that put those works in the position where they are the ones that people use as an example in an art history book. So to return to kind of your earlier life timeline, in the mid-1970s, after finishing your time at L.A. City College, you found your way to Otis, or kind of back to Otis. And among the teachers you met and from whom you took classes were two of the major figures of post-war American art, Charles White and Betty Saar. I don't want to ask you to recount the story of your meeting Charles White as a young lad and eventually sitting in on his class and so forth. It's in that Archives of American Art interview I referenced earlier. It's an absolutely terrific interview. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. But is there anything that's in your work now that you think goes back to or is attributable to, to Charles White? Because, you know, in some ways, some things in your work are kind of the you know exact opposite of some of the things he was doing. Well, I, I, you know, in a way, I think my interest in kind of historical figures is directly a consequence of having spent time around Charles White. One of the first Charles White images you spoke about 
ever seeing was one of his, I don't know if it was a print or a, a drawing of Frederick Douglass. Well, that was, that, it wasn't the first I'd seen, but it was the one when, when, when we finished, when we were shown images from that book, Images of Dignity, the drawings of Charles White. When I, I took the book back to, when we got back to class and I started copying that image of Frederick Douglass from the book. So we had we had just been downstairs in the lecture hall where the teacher had put showed most of the images from the book on the opaque projector to us, and so I just simply took the book and the image that I I started to copy was the image of Fred, the Frederick Douglass image. And so, but there, but in 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 his work though, you saw a lot of images that had to do with history and with culture. So either it was you know well-known musicians or musicians he thought people should know about you know like in that book there's a, a painting of a man named Bunk Johnson. It's the fact that there he has multiple drawings of Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and Booker T. Washington. I mean it's it's that there's history was an important thing it seemed and he he suggested to me that history was really important. So so that's. And that that you try to you should always be trying to make work that was about something. So those are things that I I, I learned from Charles White, and some aspect of that is still present in, in what I'm doing now. And we'll get to to some of that a little bit later. But while we're still at Otis, Betty Sarr, who was who was on the show a few weeks ago, last time we talked, you spoke about Betty Sarr's Black Girls Window being a work that was important to you that helped point you or guide you toward the way you represent figures and skin and the color of of people. So the figure in Black Girl's Window, which is a flat black color, couldn't be much more different from the way Charles White drew and and made made figures. Were you aware of and did you think through the 180 degree difference between the the way those two artists presented people and whether you wanted to go one way or the other? So there are a couple of things. So in, in, in Charles White's work, you can see a kind of evolution in the kind of formal refinement of his figures, where they start out with this kind of blocky kind of construction where the planes are emphasized and the figures are highly stylized. This is before he started using photographic sources and making images that seemed more photographically realistic. So that style, that early style of Charles White's work appealed to me a lot because it, it because that looked like the emblem of strength. Uh, you know, they were solid. And so I started out mimicking that style. And so, and then so subsequently, his work got more photographically realistic uh, and refined. But if you put that work, those later Charles White works, in between the Betty Saar image, which is a flat uh, silhouette on that glass, and the early... Pressed up against the glass. Yeah, yeah, and the early stylized Charles White works, where there's, there's, there is something between those if you take those two things and combine them, then you start to get close to where I think I was going with my with the way I use a black figure. Especially if you throw in Aaron Douglas, who also interested you. Well, 
in particular because some of the the graphic the illustration work he did i mean more than more even than the paintings the work he did as an illustrator for some books had that stylized you know highly decorative but complex uh, compositional organization well that was that's that was appealing because for me i mean that looked it it, it looked a lot like thinking made concrete and so and, and that's i mean in in the end what's what's important what's been important to me is the way the work seems a reflection of the thinking process that it arrives out of a process of consideration and not as some sort of spontaneous occurrence that just kind of happened that way and so if you look at those aaron douglas illustrations and I again say more, I think, for me than the paintings, because the paintings, those figures were, a lot of those paintings were near monochrome, but they were always in a range of, a tonal range of colors. And so the figures were never really black in a lot of the paintings, they, they, but they were black in the graphic work because that work was just black and white. I'm, I'm saying it badly, but, you know, when he painted murals and, or, and, and when he worked on murals that others also painted with him, I think the the understanding is that the figures in them were once darker, you know, and they've faded over the decades. Yeah, it's it's possible, but since but the murals have always been less accessible because you have to go to Nashville or the Schoenberg right, you got to go someplace. Go yeah, you know, <laughs> images of them have never trafficked the same way the images of the paintings or the illustrations have. And then Betty Saar. So the class you took from Betty Saar was a collage class. And and early in your artistic career, you made a lot of collage, and collage remained an element in your paintings, both actually and referentially, for many, many years. What what do you remember of her class? It must have had an impact. Well, the thing was, I took the class because I had already started making collage, and I had and I had started making collage primarily. Well, I won't say primarily, but in part because I was had been looking at Romare Bearden. There was there was uh, Ebony Magazine had done a profile on Romare Bearden, and it had some some of those collages in the in Ebony Magazine. And so that's where I so I, I was doing that uh, in part because of that Ebony article. And the thing was that I had already been at so at LA City College, I think one of the one of the great things about LA City College was that you you could learn how to do some things. You know, if you took a class, they did. You took a class and you had exercises, and when you did those exercises, allowed you to become familiar with techniques and processes and things that you, you know, you maybe you wouldn't have picked, you wouldn't have chosen on your own if you weren't encouraged to by uh, having a project to to complete using a, a certain method. So I had already done collage. I had already done a lot of things. And I had done a lot of that stuff on my own. And so the, the class, I wanted to take a class with Betty just because she was Betty Saar first. <laughs> so by, the, by, but by then, though, most of her work, most of her work was not really collage. It was all assemblage. It was using found materials. And using varieties of different kinds of materials and making assemblages, making boxes and making freestanding sculpture and things like that. So that's that's what Betty Saar represented. You know, more she I don't I don't know that I've ever seen a cut paper collage by Betty Saar. I don't think I have. No, I just read that the class was a collage class. Right, it was a, right. So that the class was a class. So but it was but it but we've spent a lot of time doing assemblage and stuff. 
uh, using using found materials. And the, now there was one. So the the one thing, one of the, the basic principles I think Betty was trying to impart in that class was that you sh- you shouldn't let anything become too precious too early. Uh, and so I remember there was one there was one project which I which I actually went against the the uh, proposition. <laughs> Was that you would do a you do a work, you would bring it for critique, and then you would rework that work and bring it back for critique, and then rework that. Keep reworking the thing so that you never got you you never became attached to the preciousness preciousness of a thing, even if you thought you had done a pretty good job with it. Except now I was already a little overconfident, I guess. <laughs> And uh, sometimes satisfied with things I had done. So, in, so I, I never, so I did the project, but I never did the project in a way that the thing that I did to the class couldn't be reversed, so that I could. Oh, take, you mean physically reversed? Physically, physically reversed to take it back reversed. to the stage that I liked it at. <laughs> so, but that was my resistance. <laughs> and so I would, so I, yeah. I, so if if we were required to modify it, I would do it, but I would do it in such a way that I could take it back to where I wanted it. After the after this was all over, did Betty figure that out? I don't know. <laughs> that's that's so funny, ironic, I guess, that you say that she said never figure something out too early because she's had what a sixty-four year career at this point or something. I mean, you know, <laughs> about as long a career as anybody could ever hope to have. My conversation with Carrie James Marshall continues after a break. Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, is on view now at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. The first U.S. museum survey outside California in nearly 40 years, the exhibition explores Irwin's work in the pivotal decade of the 1960s and culminates in an immersive new installation created in response to the Hirshhorn's unique architecture. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and explore the limits of perception with a modern master. In Roman decor... Elaborate mosaics transformed entire rooms into spectacular settings of vibrant color, figural imagery, and abstract design. On view now at the Getty Villa, Roman mosaics across the empire showcases the Getty Museum's collection of mosaics from the 2nd to the 6th century, tracing their histories throughout the Roman Empire. An online catalog allows you to come along on this journey from anywhere in the world. Visit getty.edu publications to learn more. And now back to my conversation with Carrie James Marshall. There are elements in in the 80s and early 90s in your work that seem like clear references to to kind of, you know, new magic, world magic, voodoo, that kind of stuff. Does that come from Betty or did you find it on your own? Well, I mean it's in from two parts. I mean, one is yeah, you you could you could make an argument that it that some of it comes from Knowing the the range of of references and sources that Betty was using, and that was a kind of mystical edge to a lot of the work. But also, I, I had a friend who taught folklore at UCLA, who I spent a lot of time uh, hanging around and talking about a lot of things. 
And so some of my interest in folk tales and culture as history and mythology and things like that. So well, some of that some of that came from spending time with this friend of mine who was a folklorist. But also, I I think as an extension of some of my interest in children's literature, a lot of mythology and those things were important to me as well. So it's a, it's a combination of of those things, and I I always thought or at least there was a period in which I I thought that if you look at the foundation of art history, that most of the artwork that was being made before the period in which capitalism started to make the artworks and art makings a kind of pure commodity objective, was that most of the artwork we saw had was made for some religious or magical purpose. And so... I mean that that and that seemed to be connected in some way to the power it had. So it's a combination of all those things. And the more I learned about the Yoruba-based religion and mythology, or Haitian religion and mythology, or if you go down to uh, Santeria in uh, Cuba and in Brazil and places like that, the more I learned about those things, the more I wanted to incorporate some of that information and some of those cultural artifacts in the work I was doing. So that's interesting because right at this point in the early 90s, there were there are some things that begin to pop up in painting after painting after painting that I wanted to ask you about. One of those is religion, Christian mythology, such as the Adam and Eve story, come into the work in 90 and in 91. So is what you're describing, you know, is, is embracing and using those stories is what you're describing with your friend, the folklorist. Is that, are we, are we kind of talking about the same period here? Yeah. Yeah. So is that why halos, these kind of uh, pointy halos begin to come into your work about then? Well, but the, those, 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 the pointy halo, those sort of burst behind some of the figures. I think you might be thinking of the scouts and stuff. I mean, that's later. And even earlier, even earlier. Well, um, you know, chalk up another one. and Yeah, I mean, some of that, I mean, even that The Ecstasy of Communion, which is a piece that Betty Saar owns. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, look at it, it's a kind of a St. Sebastian. I mean, it's it's got all these different stigmata. I mean, all that stuff. I mean, it's just piling on these kinds of religiously symbolic images and, and symbols. So... I mean that was and that's still that's a part of a part of the way in which those some of those works kind of functioned like icons, and so and I I kept that. But when it when it comes to the scouts and things, well it's it's yeah it still has that implication, but then it takes on a a more kind of pop culture function as a kind of advertising bubble or balloon or or burst than it does a religious one. Yeah, and that's a number of years later. That's, I don't know, maybe 20 years later. You know, another point of engagement with Christian mythology, if you will, is They Know What I Know, a 1992 painting that pretty directly references the Adam and Eve story. And at the bottom of that painting is a snake. And snakes pop up in lots of your paintings in the early 1990s, including kind of a folk magic-y painting, When Frustration Threatens Desire, in, well, a bunch of other paintings. 
were you consciously seeking out objects or animals that have a certain multiplicity that popped up in lots of different world traditions, or or did that happen just more organically? Well, I guess that it'd be more organic, but but then th- those works at that period were works that I was trying to make as a as a visual equivalent of early rural country blues. So if you if you listen to Robert Johnson and you take those lyrics and that tone, I was trying to make a visual equivalent to the kind of tone that Robert Johnson songs had. So if you have a song called Hellhound on My Trail or Me and the Devil or Stones in My Pathway or Come in My Kitchen, I mean, if you, I mean, you, you crossroads blues. I mean, that, I was trying to make paintings that, that looked like those songs sounded. And so that kind of imagery, that kind of folklore, again, going back to the friend I had who taught at UCLA, going back, that kind of, that folkloric kind of quality was something that I was trying to build in because it came out of the blues as well. Do you remember how or why you found snakes? Well, I mean, it, I mean, it, I mean, it's it's a kind of pivotal figure in the Adam and Eve narrative. It first kind of came into your work because it was a Christian Christian iconography. Well, because you, if if you if you you think about what so what is the, so the serpent represents the serpent represents the devil or evil, and the 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 sin of Adam and Eve was the sin of knowing against the will of God, knowing on their own, having biting from the tree and having the knowledge of good and evil. And so that, yeah, that snake is a, so you, you kind of couldn't do that without the snake. No, but you could, you could do when frustration threatens desire without the snake, but the snake is. No, but it also, it's a recurring image in, I mean, in a lot of magical narratives, the snake is a recurring image. I mean, it, it often represents the, a kind of illicit desire. And so, I mean, if you're stacking up or if you're filling up a picture with a lot of symbols, things that have symbolic reference, then, I mean, it, it would make sense that that would be one of them. I was assuming that it mattered to you that snakes existed in many cultural traditions and meant some of the same, but some different things in those cultural traditions. Did that matter to you? Maybe I'm wrong. Well, no, I didn't think about it any any more than the way I needed to use it for the thing I was doing. The individual painting in front of you. Right, the painting in front of me. Two other things that occur in a lot of paintings in this period that I wanted to ask about. One is collaged or painted references to ovaries. Chalk up another one, so this is what you want and soon, beauty examined. Why representations of ovaries? Well, only because that's, I mean, it's a sign of generations, a sign of fertility that links to the future. It's a way of thinking about genealogy. And that's, you know, a part of the, I mean, what reproduction is part of what sustains a a people. It creates the possibility of carrying on the culture. So, I mean, that's, so that's, I mean that when I use it, but it's also a a kind of a battleground, you know, where, I mean, the, the control of women's ability to carry 
children or have or don't have or not have children. I mean, that's been fought over and contested and claimed. Early 90s were particularly big years politically, yeah. Well, if you think about I mean, the years in which Roe versus Wade was being fought out, you know, and uh, sort of, I mean, you still hear echoes of that same struggle today. <laughs> it seems a never-ending struggle, in part because the uh, stakes are, are high, so high. The paintings from, from this period, often paintings with ovaries in them, and, and snakes, for that matter, include collaged elements of white women bordered usually in white, blue, or yellow. And and I don't know if that's the last use of collage in your paintings, but it's pretty close. Why them? I mean, I get in Adam and Eve why them, but in, in, in what, you know, why did they stay in the work? Well, because they still, I mean, those images are from Harlequin romance novel covers. From All a, of whom tend uh, to be white. From a particular period in which the heroine is is always a woman like those women you know, who are a kind of a stereotype of the ideal the ideal girl next door and so they you know they're not far off from barbie you know they're not far off from the uh, from from any any narrative of the kind of wholesome good girl gone bad or led astray, you know, by some corrupt male force that she encountered somehow. Uh, but that's still, but that's the idea. They are, they are a dream girl is what they are. They're the ideal that if, if you take, they are the ideal that is, they're the sought after. And so they, and they also, they also appear on the, on most of those covers, they appear fairly angelic. And so I'm using them, across all those different ways of thinking about them so that if as in a, in if you take them as a religious kind of icon yes then they they function as a kind of angelic presence that hovers a, hovers around the central subject of the figure they exist as a kind of dreamy ideal uh, as they sort of float around in a, in some of the other pictures so that's that's why those those pictures are there, and then they so then they, they and they function as a kind of on a level as an absolute contrast to the subject that's being painted in the rest of the picture, which which is not assigned any of those attributes. I've allowed us to um, dip into the 1990s before I ask something I wanted to ask about the 80s. In a number of interviews, you've identified a 1983 painting titled "Oh Dear Dangerfield," a black-on-black monochrome, as you've described it, of the National Guard Armory at Harper's Ferry, and about the raid on it. And as I understand the history, it was your first black-on-black history painting and your first painting with the flowers motif that would stay in your work for about 20 years. I say all this, and I've never seen the painting, and I can't find an image of it, and it's not in the show. So, uh, and I think you still own it. I do. So, I, I guess first of all, is everything I described about the painting correct? Because I don't know that it is. Yeah, no, it, it, it's not the first. I mean, the first black um, um, black painting would have been that portrait of the artist as a shadow of his former self. Right, but it was the first black on black history painting. I think is how. Or as a big painting. But then before that painting, though, well, so before that painting, I had also done the two invisible men naked. So that two invisible men naked was like from eighty one uh, 
82 or something like that. So so then is Odeer Dangerfield your first big history painting? So, well, uh, you know, but I, I, I guess I think of the two Invisible Men painting as a kind of history painting too, even though it doesn't have oh, the in same a different kind way. Of, yeah, it, it doesn't have the same kind of a subject. But it's it's and it's not the first painting I ever did that was connected to a revolt against slavery, because I had done a number of Nat Turner things. But this was the first painting in which, well, you know, in a way, it's it's the first painting that that I did as a history painting that didn't have as its central subject a black figure. I mean, the, the raid at Harper's Ferry was mostly white guys. Right. Well, and, and some free blacks and some escaped slaves. But the thing is, that, and there's only there's the head of a figure uh, of, a, of a black man's head up near the top of that painting, that sort of a disembodied head. But it's otherwise just that the silhouette of the building as the kind of central subject of the, of the painting and the the title of the painting it it's oh dear dangerfield it's a plea rather than an expression of surprise because it's it's based on the letter that was found in the pocket of dangerfield newby who was one of the men who accompanied J- john brown on the raid and he was the first person killed i think it's the only part i think it's the only words that made it into the letter <laughs> well no no, it's it's a it's a letter from his wife, who he was had, oh. been, had been hoping to free from slavery, first by buying her from her owner, but he kept changing the terms and reneging on the deal, and so in a last ditch effort, he joins up with John Brown in the hopes that maybe they could free her, but she he has a letter in his pocket from her which starts out, "Oh dear Dangerfield." Please come quickly. I'll keep. Please come soon. I think is the way it's, the way it goes. So that's and I just that 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 plea was you know was just was such a poignant expression of of a certain kind of anguish that it that's what struck me and it made me do that want to do that picture in which. You know, we could we could at least reflect on, I mean, the tragedy of the circumstance. I mean, and that's sort of all the way around. <laughs> you mean, and as as failed rebellions go, I mean, the John Brown's raid on Harpers Ferry was a fairly tragic <laughs> tragic situation too. So it's it's it was well-meaning, but fatally flawed. <laughs> You know, it's enough of a tragic, dramatic story that American painters have dipped into that story for generations. And it sounds like a fairly pivotal or key painting in your own developmental arc. I don't know how much control you had or didn't have over what's in the retrospective, but I, I, I'm, I, is there a reason it's not in it? Well, I, I, I took no responsibility for the selection they made in the retrospective. So it's, it wasn't in your hands? No, that that was out of my hands. I mean, it, you know, retrospectives can only be of a certain size. So you kind of can't put everything. And you got to figure out what they, they had to figure out what kind of story they wanted to tell and to figure out which works they thought that did that the best. So I didn't, and that was one of the conditions of, of participating in the retrospective was that I submit to being curated. <laughs> Not everyone does that anymore. <laughs> no, except I had never done it before. 
So it was easier not to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what I'm what I'm what I'm interested in is how somebody else perceives the value in what I've done. I could tell you all of the things that I think are the best, but what really matters to me is what somebody else thinks is worthwhile and and the story that they are willing to to try and tell uh, with the work that I want to see that too because that's that that reveals something to me about the relative success or failure of my objectives that if 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 my if what I'm trying to do and how the people who are supposed to be experts in the field who are curators and how they perceive what I've done, if those things don't match up, then one of us has some work to do. And then the way it's, I mean, since I take responsibility for the pictures I make and that they are not just vague, open-ended, undirected sort of things that I'm just throwing out, it matters whether I've been able to construct the kind of of perception that I, I, I that's important to me. So I need to know whether I did I achieved that or not, or whether I missed the mark myself. You have addressed slavery in your work almost since the beginning, and at different points in your career, you have addressed it with in different ways, either by making work about individual slaves, by making work about the Middle Passage, and, and, and so forth. And understanding that, you know, different things grab your interest at different times. Have you ever thought through, here is what the arc of my career is going to be, and I want to make sure I address these different parts and elements of slavery in it, or has it all just been, you know, what you felt like doing on May 3rd, 2012? I think I feel fairly rationally directed that I'm, I'm choosing things that I think have a certain kind of resonance and that I think are worth thinking about. So if we, if you, you go back to the to the Oh Dear Dangerfield painting, and as you said, a, a number of artists have looked at the the, the John Brown's raid on Harpers Ferry. But they tend to focus on John Brown. And so what you can see in my approach to history is that I'm, on the one hand, mostly interested in in some of the black protagonists in the narrative. And I'm also, I, I have a tendency to look at the history in a fairly from a fairly oblique angle where I'm, I'm not so much interested in recasting the story that's always told, but looking at a, trying to find an aspect of the story that I think is often ill, not quite thoroughly considered. And and part of and, and most of it I think has to do with, with the psychology of the, of the, of the subjects in the situation. Can I jump in with a specific example? Portrait of Nat Turner with the head of his master in 2011 seems like a good example of what you're describing. Right. So, so I mean, in, in that scene, so what is it? You have to look at what it presents you with. So it presents you with the figure of Nat Turner standing, looking askance, 
uh, with a hatchet in his hand and the head of a figure on the bed, but it doesn't tell you anything about the narrative. <laughs> it doesn't really tell you whether he he's just there with the head of his master. It doesn't tell you that he killed him. He is holding a bloody axe. He is holding a bloody axe, but that's because he he may have killed he killed somebody else. He didn't have he didn't he actually didn't kill his master. Or he may have axed the door that is behind him on his right. Yeah, broken in, but he he did commit one murder. But other people did most of the work. Sixty and all, yeah. So, but the thing, but he was the leader. He set it in motion, and so what he must, in in a way, you have to you you have to guess about some of the ambivalence he might be reflecting on while he's standing there. You know. Oh, it's a great it's a it's a great painting. Yeah, it's one of your most confrontational by far. But that and it is, but it, and it's confrontational without without being uh, sensational. Or even menacing. In a sense, yeah, it's like I could, you could show, show him in the act of beheading. I mean, <laughs> you could do that. But that gets beside the point in a way. And Baroque painters did that with Judith and Holofernes, and it's been done. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can see that. But what I want is something that allows for a little more reflection on the totality of the event, uh, not just an incident within the event. So in most of my pictures, you either have the image of the figure prior to or pre or, or shortly after an action. You don't see a lot of people engaged in, in the action in, in the paintings I'm doing. So we're all familiar with your project to inject black people, black life, black culture in, into the art historical canon. That you do it well is why you have are having a retrospective at three distinguished museums. And so among the art historical genres you've taken on have been portraiture, self-portraiture, history, painting, abstraction, and on and on and on. Are there art historical genres or types that you have considered and maybe even started making paintings around and then decided not to address? Not yet. <laughs> well, I ask because there's one area that it seems to me that maybe, well, two areas that maybe you've left alone a little more than maybe others, and, and those are still life, and there are, you know, objects within larger paintings. And landscape, and by landscape, I mean landscape within kind of the, the very grand, very national, very unionist, often 19th century American tradition. Yeah, well, but there, there are a couple of paintings that, that deal in some ways with both of those things. I mean, if you take, there, there is a painting in the book called Still Life with Wedding Portrait, which is not, I mean, you no, know, it's, it's unconventional in the, in, the, in the genre of still life. And there, and the the studio painting, the, the big studio painting that's with the Met has on the table there something that you could consider fairly conventional as a still life. Yeah, there are even even in the early '90s, there are little groupings of objects. Right within no... within a picture, and then as far as landscape is concerned, I mean, certainly uh, not in the picture, not in this show, but there's there's that beach scene with the couple standing on the, the sand dune with the sunset. There's also another seascape with two figures walking near the water and one sitting on a piece of driftwood. So, but that was not in the show. But those are less engagements with the 19th century American tradition than they are 
with a, a, to my mind, a really different 20th century tradition. I mean, there are no... But they do, and I only mention those because they, at least they do. So here you now have, you have the figure as, as the, and in particular, the, the one that's not in the book, you have, you have figures that are at a scale in which they are sort of, you know, the landscape or the seascape is kind of the dominant image. But no, I, I, if, if you're thinking of taking on the landscape like Beerstadt or something, <laughs> that kind of thing, no, I haven't done that, and not for any particular reason, except <laughs> that it just takes time to get two things when you're working on a lot of other stuff. You know, it just <laughs> and I'm I'm slow to make a picture when I make pictures. They take I spend a lot of time on a single picture. Last thing in your in that Archives of American Art interview that was recorded almost ten years ago now I think 2008. There's a detailed description of your experience as a ten year old boy of the 1965 Watts riots, and it's a striking specific account full of detail that that historians and certainly not just art historians will mine for, for many generations. It's really great. And one of the things that you mention remembering with clarity to this day is a jack-in-the-box clown, the, the former iconographic element of the fast food chain, up on a post, you know, on an elevated, you know, 40 feet up in the air. You said in that archives interview that you have been trying to get that memory into a painting for many years now. Have you succeeded yet? <laughs> I haven't done it. Nope, I haven't done that. No, that was one I never, I never got back to uh, doing that. Can't say that I won't ever, but that that one hadn't hadn't come up. But may still. It may still because it may find its way into the Rhythm Master comic or something at some point. You know, as a as a kind of uh, a scene and an environment, but. No, I never. I I want. I always wanted to make a picture that was a reflection of that image, but I never. I never got around to it. So this this question is going to sound rude, and I certainly don't mean it that way. But what's so tough about it? What's so tough about getting that into a picture? What's the challenge? What's the difficulty? Well, it's not so much that it's a it's a talent challenge. It's that right now, it doesn't seem to be there doesn't seem to be much urgency about that particular image. I mean, and you could, in part, because you know the, uh, you know, a lot of people may not be so familiar with the, the Jack in the Box. The, their profile has changed. <laughs> they don't use that clown on the post like they did before anymore. You and I both grew up in California. Jack in the Box didn't exist out here. Well, and yeah, they they don't have Jack in the Box in 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 Chicago or in New York, <laughs> and it seems so tied to a very specific moment in history and to a specific place, that unless I was going to do a work about the riots again, it, it's, you know, I, I haven't been able to, I haven't seen that there was any other, other reason to, to resurrect that image. Carrie James Marshall, congratulations on the show, and thanks so, so much for talking with me again. All right, Tyler, thanks. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Frank Stella, A Retrospective, a comprehensive survey of one of the most important living American artists. This exhibition presents Frank Stella's career to date, showcasing his prolific output from the mid-1950s to the present through approximately 100 works, including paintings, reliefs, maquettes, 
Sculptures and Drawings. This retrospective is curated by Michael Opping, Chief Curator of the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth in association with Adam Weinberg, Alice Pratt Brown Director of the Whitney Museum of American Art. Frank Stella, a retrospective on view in Fort Worth through September 18th. Welcome back. Last week, while surfing the New York Times website, I noticed two striking new portraits of President Barack Obama. They were taken by my next guest, Katie Granin. Granin's projects don't usually involve the American ruling class, although that's what we're going to talk about this week. More typically, her work, usually portraits, examines people outside the economic and societal mainstream. Aside from her work of President Obama, her newest project is The Nine, a documentary film that examines lives lived on blighted South Ninth Street in Modesto, California. Modesto's in the Central Valley, the same primarily agricultural region that features in the work of John Steinbeck and Dorothea Lange. Katie Granin, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. So as I mentioned in the, in the introduction, your fame and reputation as a significant photographer is indeed based on portraiture, but it's based on small r Republican portraiture. Pictures not of the aristocracy or the ruling class, but pictures of, 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 the, of broader America. When, when you get called to take a picture of the president of the United States, do you prepare for that differently than you prepare for your work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I'll, you know, to be frank, I don't, I'm not as relaxed as I am with, with my own work. And part of the process of my personal work or the, the process itself is, is, you know, kind of one of the most important parts of making, making a picture. So it's wandering, never knowing. I never know who I'm going to meet. There's a lot of uncertainty and surprise that's baked into it for me, um, even though the photograph is, is its own specific thing. The important, uh, or one of the, equally as important for me is, is, is how I get there. So when I'm commissioned to photograph someone who's as, I mean, who's as famous as the president, nobody, but, but this kind of photograph is, doesn't necessarily come easily to me because, because of, you know, so many variables and not the least of which is my kind of trying to get it out of my head that this is the president of the United States. And, oh, my God, how do I become relaxed? And there's a room full of people. There's an audience. And I'm very accustomed to working alone or, you know, with, you know, with the person I'm photographing. It's it's a totally different kind of experience. And, and there's so little time to do it. So in this case, I spent about four days, and I say I, but it's it's me, Hannah Hughes, who works closely with me, and a couple other friends who are helping us light and, and prepare really, really, really well. I mean, to the point that we were doing run-throughs, and we would break it down, and then and then put it put it back up, and make sure that there were no, literally no mistakes, and and then we had because I had to do two shots for the magazine. I know I knew I had virtually no time. So we had to do this run through of, okay, in the time it takes, I'm going to ask him to have his jacket off for one and then his, and then to put the jacket on for the second. And so in those 30 seconds, we have to shift the lights and get this thing for him to lean on. And that has to happen in 30 seconds and nothing can go wrong because the lighting was incredibly, incredibly precise. And that is all very, very atypical. One, I tend to love, I love 
working outside. I love natural light. I love paying more attention to my relationship and interaction with the person I'm photographing than I do about kind of being distracted by a crowd in the room or being, you know, not being aware that I'm, that I'm photographing President Obama. I think the one person I was more nervous to photograph was Robert Frank. And that, that was the hardest (laughs) photo shoot I've ever done because it's not my most, it's not my favorite thing to do to, to photograph people who are well-known. And um, in the past I've said no to a lot, a lot, a lot of assignments that I, that I regret saying no to. And it was so honestly because I always felt like I didn't want to be part of somebody's publicity machine. That was part of it, but maybe even the more more truthful part was I just felt really uncomfortable and about photographing people that already that already knew or that were super self conscious about how they portrayed themselves. That is so true to the history of American portraiture, going back to the early nineteenth century. <laughs> I mean, that's really consistent with two hundred years of American portraiture in America. Yeah, and, and it's you know absolutely understandable. People, I suppose, think that they have a lot to lose in the way you kind of portray yourself. And so for me to photograph people who are well-known, it's just is definitely out of my comfort zone. And when it's done well, I don't think anybody did it better, maybe Nadar, but, but Avedon. It's very hard to, you know, it's very hard to get people that are so self-conscious, hard to get them sort of to let down their guard, and I think he had all kinds of really interesting ways of doing that. But well, that leads that leads perfectly into what I wanted to ask next, which was, did you look at any specific pictures, previous presidential portraits, be they be they painted or photographic? I looked at a lot of Irving Penn before I did the shoot. Yeah, Penn uh, and Nadar, and I wanted what I what I noticed was with the all the photographs of the president were very they were very bright. He's typically smiling because he has that beautiful smile. Oftentimes his arms are crossed. He just, there was a, there's a thing that he does, you know, and, and, and I, so I wanted to do something moodier. I also knew the tone of the piece was very serious and the times, you know, I talked a lot with Kathy Ryan about the, the kind of the tone of the picture. And in this picture in particular, they were very, very closely involved in, all the decisions. So I, I, in the past, I've never had to run, you know, they've never kind of taken a look at what lighting I was using. They've never asked to see test shots ever, but this is, you know, this is the president, like this is an important, because they just, they were just really very, very careful and thoughtful about, about how we, how we did this. And so I wanted something very moody and initially it was even, it was much overall much darker and and there was there's sort of much more a, a moodier more contrasty feeling to the light that was, that they felt like that was maybe too too much and I backed off of that but I did I looked carefully at, at Irving Penn and any particular Irving Penns Oh uh, which Irving Penns oh god there's there's so many actually there's an early picture of I think it's Yves Saint Laurent is that the one Hannah or yeah which I just love that photograph so much, but he's a very different man. And as we were doing it, as we were preparing and kind of, you know, and I would sit there and kind of go through, well, how do you hold your body? How do you relax your hands? I would ask other 
you know, ask men to do the same. And there were so many, there are postures and ways of holding, especially holding what to do with someone's arms that were felt very unnatural and uncomfortable for most of the men that I was asking to, to do this stuff. So I, it was, it was helpful to run through this stuff because I knew I, I didn't, I wasn't going to have half an hour to work through these things with the president. I knew it, it, it had to happen really, really quickly. So I just, I ran through kind of things like that, just playing around with what might work. And then knowing I had so much more understanding and incredible respect for the, the nuances of, of, lighting, you know, lighting in a studio and even, and I didn't have, you know, I didn't have sort of an open window, north face lighting. I didn't have, have those kind of softer, you know, lights. So it all had to, had to be created in the, it was in the map room in the white house. So it's just much more involved than, than anything I've been accustomed to doing with lighting. In the past, I've had like literally the dumbest set up when I did very, my early pictures of the girls and their parents' houses, and it was just about being as, you know, two two lights with uh, umbrellas. It was all about, like, the lo-fi, super lo-fi one-person crew, and, and I wanted everything to be fully lit. And anyway, so it's just it's really super basic, and this was much more nuanced, and it was really, really fun to do. I loved it, but you know, when I photograph outside, I find that light. I find, you know, you look carefully at, well, recently it's all been kind of noon, bright, bright light. But in the past, it's been, you know, just kind of looking at where shadows fall under trees and constantly having to have somebody scooch a few inches as the sun moves. And, and, and that's how I've always preferred to work and to discover discover kind of what the world gives you what it offers up. So a characteristic of of pictures you take of of you know average Americans so to speak is that they are typically looking off off to the side. The figures in your pictures are typically looking off to the side. And the president is as well, although maybe to a less acute degree or angle. Was that an instruction you gave because it is in your toolkit or was it an instruction you gave perhaps because you were trying to capture his face or visage or posture in a certain way that that was the magazine select and i usually give them i'm, I'm usually not that generous about it i will give them sometimes just one say this is the picture or two and in this case we made the decision together and i i'm i think the picture is you know i'm proud of it but i i did choose a different select where he was looking off camera a little bit more and it is my tendency i tend to have an aversion to, to people looking directly at the camera. I'm always, always, I, I'm interested in the idea that someone's kind of inside their own head and in their own universe. And the picture is not for, obviously it is for an audience, but it's, it's the person in the, in the photograph is not there for the sake of an audience. You know, it's, it's more internal and, and that's, you know, oh, than a dark picture. And so with the, president i had just said you know you here's here's a few points you know that you might think about about looking kind of over here and we again had run through this stuff so i knew exactly what would be more or less flattering and we did a few versions you know a few versions of that 
But I don't, you know, I wish I could tell you exactly why I am not into people looking directly at the camera. I don't know why, and it's not about it being confrontational. It has something to do with, with, as I mentioned, who who is the picture, who is this picture for? And, yeah, I don't know, the, the history of kind of fashion photography or all the, a lot of the, the kinds of pictures that we maybe even inadvertently reference and like with some of my earlier pictures and have you know people kind of imitating poses that they had seen before and those kinds of pictures have always tended in fashion to be about the subject of the picture looking looking at at you know the audience member whether it's about seduction or or what have you I I I wanted to kind of use that, recognize that there, that there was an imitation of that kind of picture, but the reason for having their picture made, the reason that they would, they would call me, you know, I'd put ads in the paper and we'd kind of meet in the middle, so I'd want to photograph them as much as they want to be photographed. And the reasons for wanting to be photographed were, were, were varied, as various, as, you know, different as each individual but it but it was typically about something they wanted or needed and not about you know it was very very much about wanting you know maybe being bored in the suburbs or wanting to participate in some way in a kind of photograph they'd seen wanting to the, the kind of importance of what even if they were inundated with pictures that a photograph can still have this kind of importance and meaning and recognition that I, you know, I was here, I am of, I matter, I'm here, the space is always transformed into something else, more like a stage, and anyway, that whole, all all of those things around the pictures were what I believe to be much more about the motivation of the sitter and also what they were experiencing while they were being photographed. There's an element of that in the Obama picture I like best, which is the jacketless one, where he's comfortable enough either with you or or being photographed or whatever it is that, you know, it's evident his shirt is wrinkled. His suit pants are are pretty dad pantsy and his face is plainly in a way I think we're not used to seeing this particular president uh, creased with age. Did you have as goals going in that that you wanted to show age, experience, weather, or did that just happen? That that to me was just, that's who, I, I just wanted to kind of meet him exactly where he is and as he is. And, and I know, you know, I actually, I recognize the, the, creases in his shirt, which and there's a bit of, you know, you see just a bit of his undershirt. And to me, these were all very humanizing. The tie is too long, a couple inches too long. <laughs> yeah. And I, he's such an extraordinary, such an extraordinary person. And he's also a human being. And, and these just small details were sort of conveyed. I, I couldn't help but think about what is it like to be scrutinized by probably every single person you meet. What what is it like to suddenly to be a pretty relaxed, you know, a really smart, relaxed guy with a great sense of humor and everyone you interact with must treat you differently. Yes, he's the president of the United States and he's a symbolic historical figure. He's also 
a husband and a dad, and he was, you know, it, so I, those kinds of details to me were were that reminder of he, of this paradox, you know, of being so powerful and so larger than life, and and being, you know, a, a human being, and so I. I just I had no intention to kind of emphasize emphasize any specific thing except just this is who he is and right now you know and I thought he looked amazing but he's and he's really he he is self possessed he knows what he's accomplished he hasn't probably done a great job at making the public aware of all these accomplishments and I think that's part of what this this New York Times piece is about is is like the really talking about what he has accomplished and and so I just I thought that the that the tone of the picture should convey a lot of that conviction I suppose it's there Katie Grannon thanks so much for talking with me you're welcome thank you for having me on that's all for this week's show the Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.